This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are keeping on, keeping on with one of our favorite professors of statistics, Shane Jensen. (laughs) How long is that list, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Why why would you call this out? No, no, yeah. You are our favorite. I should just take the compliment. (laughs) You are our favorite professor of statistics, at least you're mine. Yes. (laughs) And and I've taken so many of your classes, so I can definitely say that. (laughs) But we are shifting gears to talk to Shane Jensen, who is a professor of statistics here at the Wharton School. And yeah, we, you're also a host of Wharton Moneyball here That's on, right. yeah. on Sirius XM 132. 8 to 10 a.m. on Wednesday morning. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Good plug. I guess it's time to transition to how statistics prom- or can help inform urban planning and urban vibrancy Or why statistics is actually cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll start there. Why, why are statistics or why is the field of statistics actually cool? Well, I think it's... Uh, I, I hope mean, we didn't part, lose, like, I mean, we're, we're kind of sort of seeing, and uh, you know, as uh, I, I get to be kind of hipster about this because I, I was <laughs> I was into statistics before it was cool. Oh. Um, before but, we called it analytics, but, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> before before it got rebranded several times. Um, but I I think I think really what it's about is um, increasingly, you know, just technology and everything. Everything, all the development we've seen over the last 20, 30 years has really just kind of allowed for essentially data collection on every aspect of, 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 of life. It's scary um, but cool. Yeah, no, and I mean, that, and, and so part of what makes statistics cool right now is we are kind of the part of the people that are developing the models that allow us to kind of understand and get insight into these new types of data. And we're also part of the kind of uh, team of people that sort of have to kind of wrestle with these issues of kind of privacy, you know, privacy versus insight. And I, that actually comes up a lot in the sort of urban analytics work that I do. And we can talk a little bit about that. But I think it's sort of, I think the way society is going now towards more kind of, you know, automated, automated technology and stuff like that. I mean, we're kind of the people, I, I guess, somewhat building the systems and robots for that automation. But it, it's sort of, it gives us an opportunity to kind of, through that process, learn a lot about, you know, how how humans function, how cities function, you know, how sports teams functions, etc. So I think it's a really, it's a, it's a golden time to be in statistics because we're kind of develop, you know, there's there's a huge demand for, the, you know, models and, and, and algorithms and techniques for gleaning insight from very new different types of data that you get to play around with. Well, and, and just quickly, the application of statistics, like how you approach, I'm trying to, I'm going to totally butcher this. I already am. But what you try to do is is use a statistical background and the methodologies to different types of areas and problems, right? So when we're going to talk about more in urban analytics, I mean, you could be doing this in healthcare. You could be doing this in other ways. So can you help us understand how you apply your background to different yeah, fields? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's kind of the uh, – I, I think it's the brilliance. It's the, it's, it's the secret It's the secret awesomeness of statistics <laughs> is that I, I kind of grew up always as a – essentially a generalist. I could never really narrow down what I wanted to study or, or spend my life doing. Um, and statistics ends up being a perfect field to mm-hmm. go into if you're a generalist because, yeah, I can I can take kind of, 
you know, one day and be working on, on, on kind of urban analytics. That's my main passion right now. But I also have projects in sports. I also do, pro, you know, projects in molecular biology or genetics. And kind of the common thread across all those is that the same kind of modeling strategies and, and intuition and techniques kind of do transfer from data set to data set. And I think kind of the – I guess the art of doing statistics, and I guess that's why they, they pay me for it, is is kind of recognizing what types of modeling strategies or ways of framing, you know, kind of the, the analysis that you're about to do are successful for different types of data versus unsuccessful. And what are kind of some fallacies or traps that people can fall into when analyzing data? And I think that's a huge part of kind of the, the knowledge that's transferred from field to field through statistics. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners who probably don't know what an, uh, urban analytics is, let's let's try to break that down a little yeah. bit. What, what kinds of things – do you study and how does how do statistics help in that? Yeah, I mean it's kind of a big umbrella term. I mean yeah. the, the the kind of law at that you know the the large scale view is basically trying to use data and quantitative methods to understand better how cities and the people within them function. Okay, um, I specifically kind of take a, a one you know kind of more focused kind of direction with that is I'm really kind of particularly interested in. Um, how the built environment, how cities are laid out, how they're zoned, where where businesses are located, how late they're open, et cetera, et cetera, how that kind of contributes or influences the vibrancy of a mm-hmm. neighborhood and, you know, defining that perhaps as just the amount of human activity, people on the street, and then correspondingly how that vibrancy can make neighborhoods safer or less safe. And so, you know, it's kind of all about looking at associations between aspects of the built environment and safety at, and at, at as high a resolution as possible. And the very cool thing about that, you know, kind of direction right now is that you can it, – it's kind of a, a perfect time to be studying that because we have a lot of historic – we have, you know – a couple centuries, certainly like last century, of historical theories from from the urban planning community yeah, yeah. Um, to bring to bear. And again, you know, this this whole kind of part of my my research portfolio really started um, through kind of a set of conversations with my a, a good friend of mine who's an architect, uh, Rachel Thurston. She works at Stantec here in Philadelphia, and she you know has a real passion for urban planning as well. So. It's been really educational for me to learn all these historical theories in urban planning about how the inbuilt environment should impact things like safety. But now we're finally, you know, the current day is the first time where we really kind of have the high-resolution data available to actually test some of these theories. And I'm curious, we we throw out the term data a lot. And so for the types of things that you're analyzing, can you give our, our listeners just a little bit more granular view of what makes up that high-resolution data? What are sort of the individual variables yeah, you might be so, looking Yeah, so for example, if, if you wanted to kind of, you know, I mean, one question, you know, one historical theory that we have um, is, is that, you know, the more, uh, you know, Jane Jacobs is this mm-hmm. very, very... Um, you know, influential urban planner who wrote back in the 60s that, you know, one kind of way to improve neighborhood safety is to have lots of eyes on the street. And she meant basically, you know, that you want to have people kind of milling about at all hours of the day because, you know, people tend not to commit crimes if there's other people looking directly at them. Um, but so taking that as a very, you know, turning that into a very specific question, again, that's part of the art of statistics. But, you know, it, it would be something like, oh, do cafes that are open later, or do they tend to discourage crime? 
So the cafes that are open later at night when crimes tend to occur, are those open cafes and hence eyes on the street more likely to have less crime around them? Well, we can turn that into an actual testable question by doing things like taking, you know, each intersection in the city of Philadelphia, tabulating the number of crimes around it. And we have high-resolution data on crime for the Philadelphia Police Department. They release basically the GPS coordinate of every single crime committed in the city. And then we can look at, you know, we can, you know, mine Google's business data to figure out where the cafes are around that intersection, whether they have open opening hours that are later than usual, and then see if there's an association there. Okay. And do that kind of, you know, sort of analysis. And that's really fascinating. I mean, I um, I was in Philadelphia when they first started debating the possibility of, of sidewalk uh, tables. Mm-hmm. And there was a big debate about it. it's going to block the sidewalks, it's going to be noisy. And when they finally allowed it, one of the things I did notice is that in the evenings, if you were coming home late, it felt safer. Yeah. Right? Because you were walking past people. You know, yeah. and so this doesn't surprise me that that happens. So, are you able to sort of use this information to sway policy analysis? Use it for um, council people who are trying to decide whether or not to allow a cafe to stay open. Is it is it an influential? Yeah, that, I mean pathway? that that is that's the long term goal. Uh-huh. Is that you know whatever results we take out of this should help to inform policy. I mean you know potential policy changes that could happen is things like well you know if you if we figure out that you know bars being open later actually helps to discourage uh, uh, discourage crime around them then you know maybe we can start thinking about experimenting with changing opening and closing hours for you know bars or so restaurants more, more or bars cafes open longer. That's what. That's well, I mean, that, for I mean, all of our listeners. The, you're seeing my – there might be a little bit of subjective bias in that, in that particular conclusion. But um, but a, a great example that's a little bit less, you know, uh, subjectively biased towards me is um, there's this been this really interesting vacant lot greening initiative that's been yeah. going on in Philadelphia for 20 years now, I believe. The Philadelphia Horticultural Society and others have uh, uh, other entities have been helping to sort of take a bunch of vacant lots and, and, and turn them into little parks. And I mean, there's obviously the kind of direct benefit of that in that it's a beautification of the city, but obviously they're interested in investigating whether there is there is an actual kind of effect on, on safety. And so and this has been stu- you know we we've had people at Penn involved in the study of this for for long before I came on the scene John McDonald who's uh, in the department of criminology has been doing a lot of the analysis for looking at whether or not cri- you know crime changes you know around these vacant lots once they're greened and you know because we have a lot of you know vacant lots in the city we can compare these sort of green vacant lots to ones that are as similar as possible but that have been ungreened and try and turn it into about as controlled of a kind of experiment as possible you're listening to dollars and change on business radio powered by the wharton school and we're here with professor of statistics shane jensen and shane we've had you on the show to sort of prime this topic before it's been a little while but you've made some progress on your research i think um, what are some of the initial insights, you know, whether it's bar, more bars, <laughs> longer hours, greening lots? Like, what are some of the insights that you are starting to see? Because, you know, been, you've been at this for a little while now. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think uh, one of the things that we've sort of uh, experienced, like, so, for for example, one of the sort of insights that we've gleaned from this vacant lot uh, analysis is that the, the some of the original kind of comparisons that were done in terms of um, – looking at differences in, in crime, um, 
just sort of did, took all the vacant lots in the city and uh, that were greened and compared to them all control lots in the city that were not green that were not greened, um, and that that analysis can basically be improved upon by recognizing that they're they're not that actually isn't a balanced comparison. Hmm. So a big you know why not? Uh, well, in part because I think again I don't know exactly how the Philadelphia Horticultural Society decides exactly which lots mm-hmm. are green, mm-hmm. but it's not in a completely randomized gotcha. way. They don't gotcha. real. I mean, it's it was intended to be sort of set up. I think kind of like an experimental situation, but they're not randomly choosing green versus ungreened lots. And there's you know they might. There, there seems to be a bias where they maybe will green lots in slightly poorer areas of the city or or something like that. And that kind of introduces some confounding yeah. into the analysis. And and so we're really kind of right now trying to use some fairly advanced statistical techniques to kind of create matched pairs of lots that, that attempt to remove that kind of confounding. And we're also trying to do that kind of at the intersection level to look at the aspects like business vibrancy and the built environment around intersections, trying to create essentially matched pairs of intersections throughout the city where we, for example, will try and find intersections that are as identical to each other except one has a cafe and one does not. Mm-hmm. And then we can try and look at the differences in crime around those intersections to sort of see if there is actually some association between presence of a cafe or whether or not the cafe is open late in crime. Some of the fine – and it's interesting the kind of – you know, that, that analysis is ongoing. But essentially the, the main lesson I've learned so far is just how heterogeneous and nuanced – these effects can be, you know, that there isn't, you know, there isn't one single strong, oh, well, businesses that are open late definitely reduce crime kind of result. It's that, you know, every business type has its own kind of, you know, difference. And businesses that are open late of certain types seem to be a little bit more influential than others. Mm-hmm. Like we've sort of seen that convenience stores, I think, that are open late are a little bit more discouraged. You seem to have less crime associated with them than, say, businesses like, you know, uh, restaurants that are open later. Um, and so I think one of the kind of main lessons from our research thus far is just how kind of nuanced and essentially contextual urban life is. And that just kind of calls out for even more sophisticated analyses. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's sort of where my head goes is, you know, are you then thinking about are there other data sets that we can sort of use to run different analyses? And I'm I'm struck by um, I think someone that we've had on the show a year ago or so that also looked at the greening lots, but on a public health and mental health perspective, right, in terms of those outcomes versus yeah. crime. Yeah, um, and, and actually it's really interesting that even some of the uh, kind of original papers that analyzed the the, the, the kind of an earlier version of this vacant lot uh, initiative um, – they kind of they, they they did find some significant differences in terms of reduction in crime of certain types, uh, but the the differences weren't particularly significant. Um, but what was highly significant was they also did surveys of residents before and after, and residents even though. You know, the data suggests that they weren't actually, in a crime frequency sense, particularly safer. They felt much safer. And it kind of mm-hmm. returns to your right. point about how, you know, you you put you, – you encourage vibrancy and people on the street and the neighborhood feels safer and healthier even if, like, there aren't actually substantially less crimes being committed. Yeah, so and, – and I know that you've been working with some of our students on these. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. And this is why – 
This is not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons you're our favorite statistics professor. <laughs> it's because you, you have really engaged students in working with, this, with you on this research. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work on these, these kind of wise fellowships as well? Oh, yeah. No, and I, I should say the Wharton Social Impact Initiative is so supportive. It, the, the generosity, both in terms of kind of funding my own research as well as providing these wonderful research fellows for me, it's been instrumental. And I think it's really – I mean – I enjoyed in part because the, the educational part of it is, is kind of fulfilling to me. I really do like kind of – I think that working with data sets like this and doing kind of these kind of focused analyses, you know, even at, at, as an undergraduate or, or even earlier, I think is, is, is the best way to teach somebody yeah, statistics yeah. essentially. And I try and kind of fold that into my educational mission when I teach courses as well. So that educational proponent is very fulfilling for me. But also, I mean, we have – some of the best undergrads ever here at Penn. And yeah. and to be able to kind of to have the Wharton Social Impact Initiative essentially facilitate a connection where I can take some of these interested students and engage them in, in, in these projects has been really beneficial. And I mean, this vacant lot greening analysis that I, I, I keep bringing up, our sort of kind of follow-up analysis to that where we're doing this more sophisticated matching is is one of is, is done by one of our, our those uh, social impact research fellows, uh, Ajit Naranyan, and uh, he's been he's done a wonderful job with it. And he's had a great time. So do you think that um, rebranded kind of analytics and, and all of that is – do you see more students being interested in diving into the numbers? You know, because it seems to me that um, when you are able to demonstrate not just the kind of fun of the number churning – but a real impact. Yeah, it's a it's a really winning combination because you're able to sort of say, here's what if we get this data and we do these analyses, here's what we know and here's what can change as a result of that. So yeah. it's a really nice it's a really nice story to tell. No, and I and I think that does it, it makes it for a more. I think it's less of a hard argument that statistics is cool now, in part because we're sort of seeing its relevance essentially right. in all aspects of our life. I mean, you, you even if you don't think of yourself as a as a as a, quant a particularly, you know, quantitatively engaged teenager, you're going around, you're like, why is my, you know, why are my Instagram followers going up and down? Or like, you know, why, why is Facebook showing me this as opposed to this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and you start thinking, well, there's, there's clearly methods behind, there's methods and data yeah. behind that. And Shane Jensen's it, it, behind that. It, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm behind that specifically. <laughs> and, and I, I just think it's, it's, it's not so, it, it's the, I think the relevance of data and 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 statistical methods is more self-evident in this generation before more than any other one. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, I, I think the Instagram or Facebook examples are ways that our listeners could actually think about how statistics actually may influence their daily lives. But yeah. also from maybe going back to community examples, I mean, I, I'm thinking of traffic patterns and traffic lights and how just even for my commute, big data are starting to influence strategic decision makings around like when there's a green light yeah no and i, I mean it, it's fascinating to sort of see i mean you know we've we we we, we talk we've long talked about oh it'd be great if you know sort of self-driving you know if we had all self-driving cars we wouldn't have traffic problems because they'd be able to communicate with each other and and, and avoid traffic jams that's actually already happening with human driven cars our gps now builds in traffic so yeah. that we you know we you know there's an accident on the highway and some people get stuck but a lot less people get stuck than they used to because They're every diverted. GPS is rerouting people everywhere. Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, we're already kind of seeing some of the benefits, but we're also seeing some of the, you know, I, I, 
what's the right word a uh, creepiness of it yeah. you know I, I mean that there's because it's 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 because this data is be, it's so easy to collect data at a high resolution that higher high resolution is more and more impacting our kind of conceptions of privacy, at least for people of our generation. For the younger generation, they, they, it'll be interesting to sort of see what their conception of privacy right. even means. Right. Yeah. How, I mean, so you, you've touched on privacy a couple yeah. of times so far in our segment. And, you know, as a researcher looking at data, um, I know in our own research, you know, we try, we, we get non-anonymized data. Yeah. And then, you know, in order for other people to access it, we anonymize it. So how are you thinking about that in your own work? Or do you use only exclusively anonymized data? Well, I mean, to the certain, we're using mostly publicly available data now. But I mean, and I didn't even answer your previous question, but this will answer it. The data that we really kind of would like to have that I think would take this research and just kind of like revolutionize it is actual kind of direct measurements of human foot traffic. Because, you know, I keep talking about how, you know, we'd like to study how the built environment influences things like neighborhood safety or neighborhood health. But the kind of intermediary state there is that the built environment, whether a cafe is open late or not, should cause more people to be present there. And then that more people being present leads to higher safety. But we don't actually have any confirmation or direct measure of whether or not more people are there. And so what we would really like to have, what would really help this research out, is being able to have more direct data on how many people are in a particular location at a particular time. And then we can start looking at how the built environment influenced that and then how that amount of foot traffic or human activity influences crime. But, of course, when you talk about direct measurements of foot traffic, that really is where start, privacy starts coming in. Yeah. Sure. Because, you know, the cell phone companies already – this they data does exist. Yeah. Cell phone companies know where we are at all moments of the, uh, of the, of the day. You know, Uber has uh, – Uber and Google have some idea about this as well. Basically, all – you know, our phones are big tracking devices for a lot of companies. Turning and, off right now. <laughs> and, well, right. And, and it's and, – and so the kind of issue that I have to grapple with is can I somehow collect or access that type of data but – you know, in a way that does not kind of, you know, basically go against my own privacy concerns and, and maintains a non anonymity of people. So, I mean, obviously, data that individually tracks people traveling through the city is, is not would, would for myself be not suitably anonymized enough. Right. And so right now we're kind of exploring again through the generous funding of Wharton Social Impact kind of ways of kind of collecting data through sensor technology that just kind of counts a number of people so or like some, a some, a location, some yeah right? essentially yeah. A, a sort of a you know a way of counting human vibrancy or measuring human activity without kind of focusing on individual humans yeah. and therefore kind of maintaining kind of the privacy you know sort of what what we would believe the privacy concerns of the public would be. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we've had you on the show before. We've been working with you for a little while now. We've talked about this con this concept of urban vibrancy. Yeah. Has your working definition evolved or your understanding of that concept evolved while you've done this analysis? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it has evolved. And I'd say it's almost kind of bifurcated because when I, you know, the first, you know, earlier when I was on here, I was kind of, I was talking probably at a pretty high level about my research and vibrancy meant at that kind of high levels, just sort of, you know, so, you know, the total sum of human activity or something like that in location. And obviously, as we've dug further and further into the research and realized how nuanced human activity kind of is, we've had to try and create 
sort of we've we essentially bifurcated into a lot of different measures of of human vibrancy. I've talked about, you know, I mean, you can measure business vibrancy, you know, at a coarse granularity of just sort of are businesses present or not. And then you can start narrowing it down into businesses that are open late versus not. Ideally, again, if we had better data businesses that are actually busy or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then even on the sort of, you know, the foot traffic side, is it sort of you know, even if we were to have that data, I think it would open up a wealth of kind of questions about how exactly to kind of capture the amount of human activity in an area with a, with a quantitative measure. Do we want to just talk about the number of people walking by a particular storefront? Do we want to talk about how long people are in a particular area, what they're, what they're actually doing in that area? Um, so, I mean, I think it's and it's really that vibrancy is we use vibrancy kind of like we use the word analytics. It's it's, it's, it's an umbrella term that has when when you get right down to it is incredibly multifaceted. Well, and it, it it strikes me because when I hear the word vibrancy, and we just have a couple minutes left, but like when I think about vibrancy, I do think like what comes to mind. I think safety is part of it, but and some of these more nebulous ideas of like community fabric yeah. too, right? That yeah. may be harder to measure. Although I think in certain disciplines, there might be good measures no, of that. And, and that is, I mean, that type of, I mean, I, what, the number one question I kind of get for people who, you know, that I'm in, in random sort of things when I bring up my urban analytics research is, is, is a question that everybody asks me is, is gener so, so does the data suggest gentrification is good or bad? And I mean, mm -hmm. never mind how politically kind of the you know the, how politically loaded a, a, an issue like that is. It's it's again it's it's unanswerable um, in, in, in that you, you have to narrow down what you even mean by gentrification, and it's really difficult to answer because so much of the impact of gentrification is on things like human the, the community fabric, and so a, a challenge for me in the future will be to try and kind of come up with. You know, definitions of what we measures and definitions of what we even mean by community fabric. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mentioned that I was will be going to Rome next week and, and a real vacation. And there's also, you know, in Rome in the center city, there's also a lot of places for people to come and hang out. Right? Yeah. You're sitting at the cafes, but you're sitting around the fountains. You're sitting on the steps. So the community fabric is in part built outdoors, and the mm -hmm. families will go walking on Sunday after dinner. Um, but I think about some of the pop-up parks that we're having here in Philadelphia as as a kind of way to build a a space where different people can come. Yeah, and um, I mean, this is what makes I think Philadelphia. I mean, you know, it's it, it just so had this is kind of sort of the luck aspect of my job as well that like I, I happen to get into this research area in a particular in, in with Philadelphia as my my my, my base city because because it's absolutely fascinating the fact that there it it, it is a city that's changing rapidly and yes. there is a lot of really interesting kind of experimentation done both you know things like the vacant lot greening initiative i brought up but things like the pop-up gardens and everything that's going on there's right. a, there's a lot of kind of opportunity to kind of learn what what kind of initiatives what developments what types of processes for tr attempting to prove a neighborhood actually are successful or not well and it's interesting because cheryl you've been here for since the 90s. Since the 90s. I've been here for six-ish years, yeah. if you count grad school. And I just feel like, gut-wise, I feel like Philadelphia has become a really vibrant place. Like, it's evolved in that way. But thank you, Shane Jensen, for joining us. This has it's been Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our guests, and we will catch you next week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.